Now we begin a series on the book of Obadiah. And some of you uh, like to use a commentary as you work your way through these uh, presentations. And so I have listed at the top of the handout the one that would be most useful for a lay reader. And it is by David Baker. He is one of three authors in the commentary Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah, all in one volume in the Tyndall Old Testament series. Uh, David is a British scholar. Uh, This is a brief evangelical treatment. It's not uh, lengthy or detailed, but it is to the point and helpful. So, and it's also reliable. It has a high view of scripture. And so it's not uh, liberal nonsense. I have to make my way through a ton of that, and that's all right for me, but uh, not for you. Uh, You don't have uh, time for that uh, or time to get the background to deal with it. So I've had 50 years of dealing with it, so I'm I'm an old hand at it, and I'm not really worried about it. But nonetheless, for your sake, for those of you that like to do that, that's the recommendation. Now, the longer commentary, which is scholarly, is by a Lutheran fellow, Paul Robb. And surprisingly, in the Anchor Bible series, which is usually a very liberal, radical, critical, uh, biblical commentary series, some of it's very good. Uh, some of it's very good critical liberalism. In other words, you can be stimulated by it. <clears throat> but nonetheless, that's the orientation. It does not have a high view of Scripture or of the person of Christ. But nonetheless, in this case, is an exception because uh, Rob is a evangelical Lutheran, and he has done a meticulous work on the Book of Obadiah, which is very well done. Uh, so, if you're interested in uh, a very detailed uh, commentary, uh, there's the other recommendation uh, of, of all of the nine or ten works that I used this summer, this is the one that's most detailed as an evangelical or a conservative treatment of the text. The others were uh, more or less liberal. All right, now, uh, the first verse of the book of Obadiah tells you that the prophecy deals with the nation of Edom. So we need to set the context for Edom in archaeology, in geography, and in history as a backdrop to this important minor prophetic work. In other words, unless you can conceptually imagine the world of Obadiah, which is the world of this Edomite conflict, Uh, and you're not going to benefit as much from the detail of what he says verse by verse, uh, which uh, will will be, in my opinion, uh, very illuminating and enlightening to you as it was to me. Uh, I should say that uh, with respect to the commentaries that I just mentioned, I am not bound uh, to either of them or to any of the ones that I used. Uh, I'll be taking my own tack on this book as I usually do. So that's not the fault of the commentaries. They're stimulating, uh, and that's the reason I use them. They 
they prod my, my juices, they stimulate my thinking, they draw me to other sources, etc. Uh, so, uh, you know, you, you're not going to be able to say, well, Denison is saying what Baker is saying or what Rob is saying uh, altogether uh, because I'm saying something that neither of them are saying. And, in fact, no one else in the commentary world is saying. That doesn't make me right. That doesn't make them wrong. It's just that's the way it is. That I don't want you to be under a misinterpretation of, of how <coughs> I'm uh, 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 delivering the material that I worked on over the summer. So let's begin with the archaeology of Edom, which, as a matter of fact, has exploded uh, over the last 25 years. In the 1990s, archaeological surface surveys of the territory corresponding to Old Testament Edom began to uncover the remains of a once flourishing civilization. This is a very significant research, very significant discoveries. When I say a surface survey, what I mean by that is an archaeological team walking over an area that was once occupied. So what archaeologists did beginning in the 90s is they started walking over the area of what was ancient Edom simply looking at what was in front of them on the surface of the ground. This can be very productive because, in fact, you can find figurines, you can find little pieces of metal, you can find pieces of pottery, you can even find some pieces of inscribed material. So uh, that's when this surface uh, layer excavation, not excavation, because they weren't really digging. They were just walking, picking up things, tagging them, marking them, and filing them away. But what they observed as they picked up pieces from the surface of the ground was that there was at one time a flourishing civilization in that area, the area of Old Testament Edom. Now, this civilization spanned the late Bronze Age to the early Iron Age. And on your outline, you have the dates for late Bronze, LBA, late Bronze Age, and EIA, early Iron Age. These are anthropological assignments. That is the history of anthropology. That is how mankind has developed in terms of the use of metals and tools. Bronze, as you may know, or maybe you don't know. Does anybody know what bronze is made out of? It's actually an alloy. Did you say it, Art? I did. Is, is copper one? Copper is one of them. Yes. Why did you say copper? Well, bronze seems to have a color. Yes, it has a kind of yellowish color, yellowish orange color to it, doesn't it? Okay. What's the other metal that's involved in making bronze? Go ahead, Art. Zinc. Not zinc. Tin. Copper and tin. And this fact that copper is uh, prominent uh, will uh, be expanded as I go on in this archaeological survey. So people learned to use or to smelt copper 
and then mix it with tin to make bronze. Bronze figurines, bronze weapons, bronze tools. And that era spans that 350-year period of ancient history. But then, of course, they realized that bronze was not as hard as they wanted a metal to be. It has a softness to it. So they moved on to learn how to smelt iron and to make iron weapons. And so the Iron Age begins about 1200 B.C. when we begin to see more iron implements in in the excavation process. So this civilization that the surface survey of the ancient territory of Edom, this the surface survey noted that that civilization collapsed and disappeared towards the end of the early Iron Age, about 550 B.C. So, there was something there in late bronze, and that civilization that was there, from what they could tell just from the surface, disappeared in the late portion of early iron. So from about 1400, 1500 B.C. to 500 B.C., actually 550. Now, this civilization reached its pinnacle in the 7th and 8th century B.C. You'll need the handouts on the back chair. During the 8th to the 7th century B.C., the signs of a significant development in that Edomite territory, that Edomite nation, was discovered by way of archaeological digs. Now, in distinction from archaeological surface surveys, where they just simply walk across the surface of the land and pick up objects as they go, in an archaeological dig, they began begin to dig down through the layer of the earth, maybe a mound that sticks up out of the uh, horizon or the surface of the of the territory. It may actually be in the Hebrew word is tell, which means a mound which covered is covered with centuries of dust and rock and so on. And they start to dig down through it, and as they dig down through it, they are going back through the layers of civilization that they uncover as they dig down into the mound or into the the packed down dirt, mud, and sand. So as a result of the archaeological digs that followed the surface surveys, they found fortresses, military fortresses. They found cemeteries. They found innumerable pottery shards, that is, broken pieces of pottery. They found an Egyptian scarab, which is quite significant, scarab beetle in Egypt, the so-called dung beetle, and several Egyptian stamp seals, which means, of course, that there was contact between this Edomite territory and the nation of Egypt. How so? Well, undoubtedly through international trade, because the nation of Edom was crisscrossed 
with international trade routes, a network that stretched from the Gulf of Aqaba all the way up to Damascus and beyond. Now, since I've mentioned the Gulf of Aqaba, if you take map number five from your packet, I'll point out where it is on the map, and then you can visualize what's behind the statement that I made just now, namely that Edom was part of an international trade route. Now, on that map number five, if you look over on the lower left, you see the Sinai Peninsula, which is labeled, it's like a great triangle of territory between Arabia or modern-day Saudi Arabia and modern-day as well as ancient Egypt. Well, there are two fingers on the left and right-hand side of the Sinai Peninsula. They're fingers of water. They are gulfs. The one on the left is the Gulf of Suez. And that's where the Suez Canal goes through to the Mediterranean Sea. The one on the right is the Gulf of Aqaba. And it is from that gulf at its peak, that is at the top of it, up to Damascus, which is about where the D is in Syrian desert that the ancient trade routes went, and actually further went all the way up to the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. You can see the Tigris and Euphrates in that that uh, darker area in Mesopotamia. Now, that map number five lays out the region that we're talking about in terms of the modern name of those countries. And if you notice the names on that map, you won't notice names that you're familiar with from the news today. There's Turkey, which has been in the news recently because of the coup that was attempted there. There's Iran, which you also No, is in the news routinely. There's Kurdistan, which occasionally is in the news. And there is Syria, which has been in the news for years because of the civil war there. And then next to Syria, there's Iraq. And south of Syria is Jordan. So that what we're talking about, namely the nation of Edom in the Old Testament, is within the territorial bounds of the modern country of Jordan. And then, of course, there's Saudi Arabia as well. So uh, we're looking in the Old Testament at lands, at geography, at history, which has precedence for events even in our own day insofar as these nations in the Middle East are still in the news. All right, now, the digs... In this Edomite region, turned up, as I said, cemeteries, military fortresses or garrisons, turned up lots of broken pottery sherds, which means there was a lot of human activity going on, putting things in pots and vessels, etc. But the most significant thing that these digs turned over was the evidence of Edom's prosperity as a nation. Not only her prosperity, but her prosperity as a result of her industry. Well, what was the source of this industry? What was the source of this prosperity that came from Edomite industrial processes? It was copper mining and copper smelting. 
In these archaeological excavations, they have uncovered copper smelting and copper mining operations. And they've been able to determine that at its height, as I mentioned, between the 8th and 7th century B.C., this production of copper was at its peak, feeding the tremendous wealth and prosperity and significance of Edom as an international mercantile nation. Well, where do we find out about these excavations? From the Department of Anthropology of the University of California, San Diego, or UCSD as it is known, for that university has taken the lead in the archaeological exploration under the direction of Professor Thomas Levy. Now, you will find many references to this work by browsing Levy, L-E-V-Y, plus Edom on the Internet if you're interested. Uh, I've placed that on your outline, and I've actually indicated a couple of sites where you can see pictures of this uh, information. And uh, as I've said before, uh, if you don't want to type in all of the uh, letters and uh, symbols of the URL there, it's easier for you to use these Internet links after we've uploaded these handouts onto the Internet site at nwts.edu. So when Mary sends this tape to George Young in Colorado and he posts the tape, he will also combine with the audio of my speaking this evening these handouts. And when he does so, all you'll have to do is put your cursor on those uh, long lines of, of letters and figures and double-click and the site will come up automatically. It's the easiest way for you to see these things on your computer screen than to type all of that rigmarole in, into your computer by hand. I mean, you can do that if you wish, but the easier way is to wait for you know about a week when we post these things a week after we deliver them and then these handouts go up and are a lot easier to use as far as Internet uh, uh, <clears throat> pictures and, and descriptions and so on and so forth are concerned. you have any questions about that? Do you understand how that works? Okay, you just, you just download the handout, double-click on the, the URL, which will be highlighted in blue on your screen, and it'll come up with a picture right away. It's the easiest way to see them. If you're interested in that kind of thing, this is, this is really quite fascinating stuff. So I hope that you'll take advantage of actually looking at some of the pictures. All right, I alert you to the fact that Levy and his team at UCSD are not Bible-believing archaeologists. You could, of course, could expect that out of the State University of California. But they are, nonetheless, generally appreciative of the biblical record. That is, they are taking the words in the Bible about Edom seriously. Now, they don't believe them as a religious testimony, but they believe them as a kind of historical or anthropological record. For, in fact, they believe some of the Bible is fabricated, some of it is myth, and some of it is political agenda. Now, leaving that to the side, it doesn't make their work useless. 
Okay, that's been very stimulating and useful to me, as you can see already. I'm not worried about their disbelief with respect to gathering or accessing information that comes only from their research and so on by the common grace of God. However, as cultural anthropologists, they have attested the facts uncovered before their eyes. They are eyewitnesses with their spades and their little spatulas and so on, even their brushes. If you've ever seen archaeological excavation, they have brushes. They brush things and go very slowly, very meticulously. At any rate, these men and their team have seen with their eyes <coughs> the evidence of those rocky plateaus of ancient Edom and namely the fact that Edom was a prosperous and flourishing kingdom from 1400 B.C. to near 550 B.C. They've seen the range of this information that has been dug up through the archaeological uh, <coughs> digging down into the mounds that are there at Edom, Edom, and they are attesting in their publications to what they have seen, namely that this was a wealthy Civilization, populous civilization, internationally recognized civilization, and a civilization which was flourishing at the midpoint of the history of the Hebrew monarchy from 800 to 700 B.C. All right, now, if Eden was prominent from the 8th to 7th century B.C., it means that you cannot deny that Edom was also prominent during the Davidic and Solomonic monarchy. That means when David and Solomon were on the throne, Edom was also maybe not as prosperous as it was a couple of hundred years later, but it was also a flourishing nation in its own right. So from the excavations of the biblical record of the Edomites, in contact with the children of Israel, we can actually show that there was not necessarily direct contact, but there was the existence of these two peoples, these two nations, from the time of Moses to the time of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And that record is vindicated through what they have unearthed in their archaeological digs in this area. Now, that is important to note. This important archaeological work reinforces the prominence of a well-developed Hebrew monarchy established by David and Solomon in Jerusalem. A monarchy established likewise in prosperity and sophistication. Now, you will say to me that you don't have any doubt about that because the Bible tells you so and good for you. But the archaeological spade is verifying these facts because, in fact, there is a large school of Old Testament scholars and even Old Testament archaeologists who do not believe that David and Solomon ever existed. They believe that their mythical inventions of Jews in the 7th or early 8th century B.C., and projected into their past as kind of hero figures. These are the so-called minimalists of Old Testament criticism and interpretation. 
Minimalist meaning they accept only the minimal interpretation of the Hebrew monarchy from about 700 B.C. down. They do not believe that David, when we date to 1000 B.C. and Solomon to 970 B.C., they don't believe that they ever existed. And they say, in addition to that, there is no archaeological evidence that there ever was a Hebrew monarchy in 1000 B.C. or 970 B.C. Liberalism is great on denying anything in the Bible. So, we should not be surprised that there are those also who, we already know there are those who don't think Moses ever existed. They think he's an invention. He's a, he's a mythical figure. Though we shouldn't be surprised that there are those who think David and Solomon are mythical figures. Well, once again, as this archaeological work in the nation of Edom is showing that the Edomite nation was a flourishing national civilization at the time of the Hebrew monarchy. So at the same time, what have we found in the last 10 years? We found the Valley of Elah in Israel. And the Valley of Elah is where David fought Goliath. And those valleys are filled with Philistine fortresses just now being uncovered. And we have found since the Six Days War in 1967, when the Jews got Jerusalem back, we have found excavations in Jerusalem in which they believe they have found the stones of the palace of David in the, in the destruction layers way down behind the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Female archaeologist Elat Mazar has published Numerous articles on that point and has defended the historicity of the David and Solomonic monarchies. <clears throat> My point is the broader paintbrush, the broader picture here, even as Levy and his anthropologists at UCSD are demonstrating the respect to Edom, the broader picture is a very complex and sophisticated civilization in Judah, in Israel, with David and Solomon on the throne. What happened last week? What happened last week was the excavation of a large palace house in Gezer, dating to 1000 BC. Amazing outline of this building, of the foundation outline, as you can see it online. <clears throat> What's the significance of that? Well, Gezer. How did Gezer come into the history of Israel? Gezer came into the history of Israel as a present of the dowry of the Pharaoh of Egypt when he married his daughter to Solomon the king. Now, we're not suggesting that that palace that they found in Gezer is Solomon's palace or even his residence. It's too early to speculate on that. But here we have those denying the historicity of David and Solomon and we find the Valley of Elah where David fought Goliath. Here we have those denying the historicity of David and Solomon. Last week we find Gezer and a palace, sophisticated palace, dating from 1000 B.C., the dates of David and Solomon. The spade proves the Bible. The record of the archaeological digs confirms the testimony of the Scriptures. You should be all in favor of biblical archaeology. 
You should, in fact, be excited to find out what biblical archaeology is doing day by day. Every day I look at a website to see what has popped up. It's a website from the man who spoke here years ago, Bryant Wood, who spoke on the excavation of Jericho. Some of you were here to hear him. You remember how excellent those lectures were, how he was defending Joshua's conquest of Jericho from the excavation of the city. And he showed slides and pictures and so on. Well, he's part of an organization called Associates for Biblical Research. They have a website. Every morning I click on that website and I look at their tab called Research. And they give you the latest information on what has been discovered in, in Israel, Palestine, which has reference to biblical archaeology. And they have a, a wonderful summary of the discovery of this palace in Gezer and links to places where you can see pictures of the site. So, Associates for Biblical Research, ABR. And in their opening screen, look at the tab. It'll be right in front of your eyes, marked Research. And one of the first articles up this week is Solomon's Palace at Gezer. Now, we're not sure, as I said, that Solomon lived in it, but it comes from that era. All right. Well, this copper industry, whose remains have been unearthed at Edom, are located on your map in the packet with the dark colored map. It would have been the first one on the top of your packet originally, which has the Dead Sea in black and the words Dead Sea in white over top of it. Now, you will notice below the Dead Sea and on the right-hand side of the double white dots is are the, are the words Kirbat and Nahas. That's Arabic for ruins of copper. Ruins of copper. So this is the place where Levy found those copper smelting uh, instruments and uh, settlements. It's on the east side of, and you can see it in between the uh, dotted lines, the Wadi Arabah. The word Wadi means wash. It's like a dry wash. Arabah means waste or desolate area. The Arabah is that region of the so-called rift that extends from the Dead Sea down to the top of the Gulf of Aqaba, which we pointed out earlier on map number five. The evidence that is in this settlement, Kirbat and Nahas, consists of smelted copper ore, copper ingots, charcoal fire, air tubes, and clay ovens. How did they get copper? out of copper ore. How do they get iron out of iron ore? You don't have pieces of iron in red iron ore. You have to cook it in order to get it out. How did you get the copper out of this copper ore? Particularly in the ancient world when you didn't have, as we have in the, in the American steel industry, blast furnaces or basic oxygen converters or, or Bessemers or whatever else it takes to produce 
uh, iron and steel out of iron ore. Well, this is how they did it. They discovered that by heating this rock, they could get little droplets of metal out of it. And so they began to mine the rock in places where it looked similar to what had produced these little droplets. And as they mined it, they would grind it into powder. They pulverized it. In pulverizing it, then they realized that they had to heat it so as to melt out the metal that was in it. How would they get it hot enough to melt it out? Would they use charcoal clay ovens? And they would also use primitive air tubes to blow oxygen into those ovens so as to turn the heat up and to increase the rate of purification of the ore. And then they would drain off the melted or the melted metal, still hot, and put it in ingots and allow it to cool. And from there, they would use other processes to alloy it with tin to produce bronze or to use the copper itself for other purposes, for instance, jewelry and figurines, particularly uh, sacred or uh, idolatrous figurines, etc., etc. There are, in fact, places in the world today where you can go to see them make silver and gold in this way. Very primitive, but nonetheless, it works. It works. All you need is the cheap raw material that you have around you and the hard work and ingenuity to stick at it and turn up the fires till it gets hot enough to melt out the metal. Now, one more thing. Uh, There is near Kirbat and Nahas a garrison which was obviously for armed protection of this particular region of Edom's profitable copper manufacture and trade. The point here is that it's not just enough in this age or in this world, it's not just enough to have the copper mine, it's not just enough to have the copper smelting business. You need to protect it. You need to protect it from those that want to plunder it and raid it. And so there are garrisons near this site which indicate how important it was to the Edomites to protect their investment. Well, this recent archaeological research tells us that the nation of Edom during the era of the Hebrew monarchy from King David to King Zedekiah, 1000 B.C. to 586 B.C., the Edomite nation was a significant civilization centered on the east side of the Arabah Rift. There's the Arabah Rift on that map. With prosperity derived from its copper industry and control of international trade routes, caravanning riches from Africa and Arabia over the famous King's Highway, which stretched from the Gulf of Aqaba through Edom, Moab and Ammon to Damascus in Syria and beyond to the fertile Tigris-Euphrates Valley of Mesopotamia. Now, let me show you that King's Highway just for a moment. We'll talk a little bit more about it 
uh, later this evening, but on map number 116, you will notice at the bottom of the map center, the city of Elat, which is at the top of the Gulf of Aqaba. We mentioned the Gulf of Aqaba several times already this evening. So that's one of the, the gulfs that is a finger out of the Red Sea on the east side of the Sinai Peninsula. You'll notice that dark black line that comes out of a lot and goes up the map all the way to Damascus. If you follow that dark line, you'll see that it ends up in Damascus. It actually goes beyond Damascus. It goes all the way to the Tigris and Euphrates. That is the famous King's Highway, as it's labeled there just opposite Judah. It's called the King's Highway because it is a highway that kings of these regions used to travel, but it is also the highway in which the riches of the kings of that region flowed. Flowed on merchant caravans, flowed on trade caravans, flowed from the Gulf of Aqaba, which had access to the Arabian Peninsula and to the coast of Africa, all the way up to Damascus and Mesopotamia, which also had access to the riches of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey and the uh, Persian, Babylonian, and Assyrian empires. Notice that that road goes right through the nation of Edom, which underscores once again the fabulous uh, wealth and success of the population of this region, the Edomite nation was selling its copper production. It was trading on its pop copper production. It was benefiting from its copper production. It was benefiting from the wealth that was flowing across those caravan routes, particularly that major caravan route, the King's Highway, which connected the wealth of Arabia and Africa with the wealth of Mesopotamia, Syria, Damascus, and the east side of the Jordan River. The Queen of Sheba came up and got on that road for a while. With her caravan full of riches and treasures, she came from modern-day Yemen, probably, on the southwestern corner of the Arabian Peninsula, and came to see Solomon in all his glory. She probably was on a part of that road when she was making her way towards Jerusalem. So, it is a significant piece of the understanding of the nation of Edom that this archaeological investigation, this recent archaeological activity, is telling us more and more and more about the civilization of Edom while it lasted as a nation. Its history contiguous to the history of Israel and Judah. The interface then between the two is the background to Obadiah's prophetic work. He is concentrating on Edom, but not in exclusion to Judah and Jerusalem, as we shall see. So this background is important for the broader picture of Obadiah's vision. His world, the world of which he is a part, the world to which he is an eyewitness, the world which he knows well. It raises the question of how he knows it, and we'll try to address 
that question as we move through the book verse by verse. Edomite culture and civilization were burgeoning in the monarchical period of the Hebrew monarchy and likely peaking, as I've indicated, from the 8th to the 6th century B.C. And the 6th century B.C., that is the putative era of the prophet Obadiah and his prophetic book devoted to Edom. The Edomite nation disappears in the 6th century B.C., and the prophet Obadiah prophesies in the 6th century B.C. We'll try to narrow that down a little more particularly as we go forward, but nonetheless, this scenario, this broad panorama of the civilization and prosperity of Edom comes to an abrupt end when the nation is annihilated by the Babylonians in the 6th century B.C. Does that ring any bells? The Babylonians destroying a nation in the 6th century B.C.? You're nodding your heads. What bells does it ring? Anyone? Blurt it out. Marge? Yes. What year? 586. By whom? And what nation? The Babylonians. So here we have an interface between the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem by the Babylonians and the destruction of Edom. In fact, not only the destruction, the annihilation of Edom. Judah wasn't annihilated because of the captives that went into captivity. But Edom was annihilated by the same Babylonian nation, not the same Babylonian king. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar in a minute We'll discuss uh, who it was that was responsible, the Babylonian king responsible for the annihilation of Edom and the testimony that remains uh, that was just uncovered uh, to that event. All right, so this, this broad panorama is to give you a sense of the, the industry, the drama, the civilizational potential of the Edomite nation at the time in which the prophet Obadiah is speaking and into which he speaks to Edom's history as he knows it. Any questions? Yes. Today we have new ideas come build upon previous ideas. But when they started pulling the iron out of the rock, what stimulated that? What would they have had to heat that rock high enough to even observe the ore flowing out of it? Yeah, it was, it was probably an accident that somebody had the rock around the edge of a fire that was particularly intense, very hot, hot enough to cause some of that metal to flow out of it, perhaps little beads of it, tiny little beads of it. And so seeing that that had happened, then they then returned to the source and gathered more of it and tried to see if they could get more of those little beads flowing out of the rock. And as they did that progressively, uh, they learned that they needed to get the, the rock hotter 
So in order to get it hotter, they had to pulverize it. It's obviously going to work better if you grind it up and make it into a powder, then heat it up. And you're going to have to blow on it in order to make it even hotter than your wood can make it hotter. So they devised little air tubes, clay tubes, could have been uh, reed tubes uh, that they could blow their own air from their own mouths into the ovens where they were cooking it and then turn up the temperature even more so that it would uh, the the copper metal would flow out more quickly so it it's probably a kind of an accidental thing originally because of a very intense fire that they saw well when they were done when it cooled down they found these little beads of metal in fact copper metal would would attract your attention you know it has a color that well, you know, if you've ever peeled the plastic off your copper wire, it, is, it, it grabs your attention. Copper is quite beautiful when it's polished. <clears throat> so that, that's probably how it happened. And, and then they just took it one step further and built up uh, a, a primitive industry out of it. <clears throat> you know, we have, we have huge uh, furnaces today to do that very same thing, whether they're electric or uh, <clears throat> uh, gas-fired or uh, even in the in the steel industry, whether they're fired by uh, coke, coal, and limestone, and iron ore. Okay. Any other questions before we go to the break? All right. Stretch your legs, and we'll come back and look at some more of the background to the history of Edom. All right. We have looked at the archaeology and that's background context uh, to Edom, which is our subject in the book of Obadiah. <clears throat> and we want to turn to look at geography of the country, particularly in terms of how that geography is described in places in the Bible. Now, eventually, when we're through these introductory materials, these background materials, we will get to the text itself, and we will work through the text verse by verse. So <clears throat> these background uh, <clears throat> comments are setting the scene, setting the stage. I'm hoping, I'm stimulating your imaginations. You can see these trade caravans. You can see these smelting ovens. You can see these military garrisons full of soldiers. You can see these bodies of water. You can see this... Rift Valley, the Arabah, I'll talk a little bit more about it. In other words, that you can actually see the geography and the history and the archaeology that's being described here because the prophet Obadiah is also seeing some of that. And we'll draw that out as we look at the way he describes that in the verses of his book. But now we want to look at the geography dealing with the names of this region that came to be known as Edom. <clears throat> the region was first called Edom in Genesis 32.3, where another name for the region also appears, a synonym for Edom, namely the land of Seir, S-E-I-R. Now, you can see Mount Seir on my map number seven. It's on the lower right-hand side of the Arabah, 
the Arabah being marked there clearly below the Dead Sea. We've already seen that on the map that had Kirbat and Nahas on it. Map number seven. You see Mount Seir there to the right of the word Arabah. So, Edom in Genesis 32 is also called the land of Seir. Jacob's brother, who was Jacob's brother? Jacob's brother Esau is living in this region, region of Edom, when Jacob returns from serving Laban, his uncle, for 20 years in Aramea, or what we would call Syria. Remember, Jacob had fled from his brother. Esau had threatened to murder Jacob, and Jacob fled to the north to his uncle Laban's place where he fell in love with Rachel, but he got tricked with Leah and then had to serve even seven years beyond that in order to, so to speak, satisfy his greedy uncle. <clears throat> Jacob, Esau rather, is living in that region when Jacob returns from uh, Uncle Laban with his wives, Rachel, Leah, and Bilhah and Zilpah, their handmaids. The region would bear Esau's name Edom, which in Hebrew means red man, a nickname that Esau received at his birth, according to Genesis 25, verse 25, because he emerged from Rebekah's womb red. So if you're filling in the outline and you want to write in the answers on the blanks, 32.3, Edom is the land of Seir, S-E-I-R, and Edom, Genesis 25.25, equals red man. Now, according to Genesis 14.6, in Abraham's day, that's two generations before Jacob, in Abraham's day, the region was occupied by a group called the Horites. H-O-R-I-T-E-S. <clears throat> now, these Horites are mysterious. They're mentioned in the Bible. That's about all we know about them. Uh, we have not discovered anything which indicates uh, a civilization of the Horites because no written documents survive, and they're only named in the Bible. There is no history of them in the Bible besides what impinges upon the career of Esau. When Esau and his entourage of wives, sons, daughters, household and livestock separated from his brother Jacob in Genesis 36, verse 6, they merged with the Horites, who were also called the sons of Seir, the Horite in Genesis 26, 20. So, one of the patriarchs of this group was named the Horite, the Horite. <clears throat> and consequently, Horites became the label for his descendants. And that group merges with Esau's family when he separated from Jacob in Genesis 36. You may remember that after the reconciliation between Jacob and Esau, <clears throat> 
The land was too small to contain them both. They were both exceedingly wealthy men at that time. Jacob, from what he had earned by working for his uncle Laban, and Esau, because of what he had earned from being a pagan entrepreneur. And consequently, they had to divide their their, uh, families, and Esau went to the east into the Horite region or the region of Mount Seir and gave his name as he amalgamated his his blood with the blood of the Horites, gave his name to the region itself. <clears throat> now, there's an interesting side note in Genesis 36-31. text there says that the Horites had kings, or perhaps chieftains would be better translation of that word, before there was any king that ruled in Israel. In other words, it's almost a thousand years. Before Israel has a king, the Horites already have what you might call a king or at least a tribal chieftain. Well, there is parallelism or symmetry between the name Edom and the name Seir. It's common in the Old Testament. The two names are used synonymously or interchangeably. And a notable example of this is in the victory song of Deborah and Barak in Judges 5. You may remember victory that Deborah and Barak accomplished over Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, and the captain of his army, Sisera, in which they say in Judges 5, verse 4, they actually sing in Judges 5, verse 4, Lord, thou didst go out from Seir, thou didst march from the field of Edom. Notice the parallelism. Lord, thou didst go out, parallel to to, thou didst march. Thou didst go out from Seir, thou didst march from the field of Edom. Seir and Edom parallel as march and go out are parallel. And so this parallelism that we've noted in Hebrew poetry, particularly prominent in the Psalter, this parallelism reinforces the imagery. It gives you another the vision, another idea, another concept. It's not just Edom, it's Edom, which is Seir, which is mountainous. It's not just Edom, which is the nation of the red man Esau. It's the nation of this mountainous region of Mount Seir. So <clears throat> the two interchangeable parallels are not exactly uh, <clears throat> precise duplications. They are symmetries or parallelisms with a variation which increases the imagery of the double line. The prophet Obadiah uses the geographical name Edom. If you have Obadiah open to chapter 1, there's only one chapter. If you have Obadiah open, you'll notice the name Edom in verse 1, and then again in verse 8. He uses Esau and house of Esau in verse 6. And verse 18, but curiously, he avoids the name Seir. He never uses it throughout this book, even though this book is dealing with Edom in the main. He does not use the name Seir, but he does use a phrase for the nation of Edom in the land of Esau, which is unique to his vocabulary. 
He uses a geographical name for this region which appears nowhere else in the Old Testament. Only Obadiah uses this label. He calls Edom Mount Esau, or the Hebrew could be translated Mountain of Esau. And you'll notice it occurs in verses 8, 9, 19, and 21. More often than any of the other names that he uses, he uses that idiom, which is peculiar, unique, and singular to Obadiah the prophet. Mount Esau, Mountain of Esau. And don't you ask the question, why? You should. Why does Obadiah do this? You should ask the question. Because when you find a uniqueness in a biblical passage that no one else uses, you have to ask yourself the question, why is he doing this? This is detective work. Is it work for you to think about? No, you don't sit on your duff and just sit and we listen to Dennis and Yak. You want to think about this stuff. All right, Denison, smart aleck, what's the answer? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I've been working all summer on the book, and I still don't know. (laughs) All of which means you are humbled by the mysteries in the Word of God and amazed at you know, these uniquenesses, these unique elements. What is it about that phrase mountain and the name Esau that intrigued the prophet Obadiah? What is he trying to do with that? I'm not sure I know, and so I say at this point, I don't know. But I draw your attention to it since You may climb up a little higher than I, and I'll be obliged to you if you tell me the answer. All right. So there is this symmetry of use in vocabulary for geography that Obadiah shares with the other Old Testament writers. But there's a uniqueness to Obadiah, which reminds you that every book of the Bible is different. Every book of the Bible has a unique element to it. And this is not the only unique element to Obadiah, but this is one, this geographical differentiation and peculiarity. There are other unique elements to this brilliant prophet, as I trust you will see as we go on. All right, let's look again at map seven, where you have a picture of the threefold division of the geography of the land of Edom. The region is split by that great rift labeled the Arabah, which follows the route of the Jordan River south to the Dead Sea and thence through the Arabah down into East Africa. Notice what I just said. The Rift Valley consists of a great depression that extends from above 
the Sea of Galilee, which is on that map, Sea of Chinnereth, and comes down the Jordan River Valley through the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on the planet Earth. It's the, it's the lowest place below, <coughs> it's the spot below uh, sea level, the lowest in the world. Down through the Arabah, which is another part of that cleavage, that cleaved rift. Okay, it's a deep depression. <clears throat> goes all the way down through the Red Sea under the water. Goes into East Africa and still cleaves the land as it goes all the way down into Uganda and Kenya. It's called the Rift Valley. It extends all the way from virtually Mesopotamia all the way down into Africa and Edom is divided by it. The Arabah is the Rift Valley that goes all the way into East Africa and all the way up to Mesopotamia. And the Jordan Valley is a part of that rift. Now, that cleft, the Arabah, separates western Edom from eastern Edom. It cuts the nation in two. The western portion, eastern portion. And if you look at map 116 now, and note Zoar at the south end of the Dead Sea, you'll find Zoar just opposite the M in Moab. You see the Dead Sea outlined there in dark ripples. You all with me? Okay. If you glance at Zoar and then look down to a lot, you will notice that between those two cities is what is labeled on map 7, the Arabah. It sets apart the western plateau of Edom, labeled on map 7, the wilderness. I'm switching maps on you from 116 to back to 7 again. You see the wilderness to the left of Arabah? All right, the Arabah then divides the western plateau highlands, which is this wilderness area of the nation of Eden. All right, now, this wilderness region on the west side of the Arabah is 4,000-foot mountains. Now, that's not very big for us, but it's big for them. Those are big mountains. Those of us from western Pennsylvania know that those are big mountains. When we come to the Rockies and to the Sierras and the Cascades, wow, these are giant mountains. Okay? So, anyway, you think 4,000 feet, that's not a mountain, that's a hill. No, these are rugged mountains by Middle Eastern standards. All right, so you've got 4,000-foot mountain ranges on those western plateaus. And they support grasslands, believe it or not. Agriculture, believe it or not. Pasturage for herds and flocks, believe it or not. Why? Why are they green sometimes? Why do they have pastures sometimes? Why can you plant agriculture there sometimes? Why? Well, because they get the rain shadow, that's why. Because the rain comes from across the western, the Mediterranean Sea, and bounds up against, piles up against those 4,000 foot mountains, and it bursts into rain showers in the fall and the spring of the year. So, 
Western Edom or the western part of the Arabah can support life. It can support herds and flocks. Here's this marvelous civilization that's melting copper and selling it. It's got these trade routes and so on. How do these people eat? Well, they've got an agricultural industry on the west side of the rift. And that's producing food to feed them. Not only what they meant trade for on the caravan routes, I'm not denying that, but nonetheless, they can produce agriculture in that region of their country. But on the east side of the Arabah, what is labeled Mount Seir there on that map number seven, we've already discussed that point, on the east side is also 4,000-foot mountains, but very arid mountains, barren mountains, barren and arid because they receive very little annual rainfall. Now, this is not really so far out of your own region of imagination. You know that this side of the Cascades, namely the west side of the Cascades, is green and lovely. And you also know that as soon as you go over that peak towards Ellensburg, you're going into a desert. And it looks like you've been in the Sahara. Well, not quite. It's not quite as bad as the Sahara. But it is dry and barren except where there is water. It's the same kind of thing that's happening here in Edom. The Arabah is the peak up there at wherever the peak is. <laughs> that's no quality pack, no quality pass and beyond. <clears throat> the Arabah is kind of the peak, only it's not a high peak, it's a low peak. But it divides the nation. The west side, which is more fertile, the east side, which is barren and arid. So, the east side of this nation is literally riddled with intersecting trade routes. We pointed out the King's Highway, which is on map 116. We've already shown that label. But the archaeological maps of this region are riddled. They're crisscrossed. The whole nation of Edom is crisscrossed with little roads, roads that they've been able to trace out because of the remains that they found there. So it's not just the King's Highway, which is the most prominent one. But there are little roads with, you know, what they're doing is they're carrying trade and produce and, and supplies, etc., all over this nation. So in summary, the northern border of Edom, back to map 116, is the Zared River. Well, where's the Zared River, Denison? Well, it's actually that dotted line that goes from Zoar to the right. That's actually a river called the Zered. <clears throat> it is also, the, that Zered River is also the southern border of the nation of Moab. There you see Moab labeled on the map. That little dotted line, which is a river, <clears throat> or a river bed, is the southern border of the nation of Moab. <clears throat> the eastern border of Edom is the Arabian Desert. The southern border of Edom is the Gulf of Aqaba, which is that body of water beneath a lot at the bottom of your map. And the western border of Edom is, and back to verse, back to map number seven for a moment, the Negev, N-E-G-E-B, the Negev. That's a Hebrew word that means the south. It's actually the southern portion of Judah. So-called Negev because it is a high mountainous plateau land.
Well, after the collapse and destruction of Edom at the hands of the Babylonians, and we mentioned that it is the same nation that destroyed Jerusalem and Judah, at the collapse and destruction of Edom by the Babylonians, nomadic Arabic Bedouin tribes drifted into the region that had been Edom. They became known, map number 240, as Nabataeans. Now, you'll see Nabataeans at the bottom of the map in a kind of half circle from the bottom N, and you follow it, N-A-B-A-T-E-A-N-S, Nabataeans. So the Nabataeans drifted into the vacated region of Old Testament Edom, and the region became known as the region of Nabatea. The Nabataeans then pushed the remaining Edomites to the west, where they settled in the Negev, or the south of Judah, as we pointed out, and in the Hellenistic era, or that is, in the era of the Greek Empire, these people were called Idumeans. You see the word Idumea there, south of Judea. Idumeans is the Greek word for the Hebrew term Edom. For instance, if you were reading the book of Obadiah in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, if you're reading the book of Obadiah in Greek, you would be reading Idumea for Edom. In the text. So the Idumeans are the latter day Edomites displaced by the Nabataeans after the time of Alexander the Great. And who is the most famous Idumean in history known to you? Herod the Great. Herod the Great. Very good, Dick. The infamous Herod the Great. The infamous Herod the Great who tried to destroy the baby Jesus. The infamous Herod the Great who actually built, didn't actually build it, but he expanded the Temple of Solomon. No, not the Temple of Solomon, the second temple, the Temple of Haggai and Zechariah after the Restoration. So, it was that temple into which Jesus uh, entered. It was that temple in which he prophesied, if you destroy it, in three days I will raise it up. That temple which was never really finished when the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. But Herod the Great expanded that temple as a political stop to the Jews who hated him. And of course he returned the favor. Obviously he wasn't afraid to massacre infant children. He was an Idumean, And that's what he's labeled even in the New Testament. All right, so you now know the history of this region with one final comment. The Nabataeans, whom we, whom we mentioned and who, whom you see on the map, took over the region of Edom, populated the east side of the Arabah Rift, and much of ancient Moab and Ammon, as you can see from the map because Moab is on top of Edom and Ammon is on top of Moab on the east side of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. 
Now, the capital of the Nabataean country was the famous city of Petra, P-E-T-R-A. Rose-colored Petra from the reddish sandstone, certainly a reminder of reddish Esau or Edom. The reddish sandstone metropolis of Petra, which was the great commercial center of that region from the 4th century B.C. on. Now, if you go on the Internet and just search for pictures of Petra, you will be astounded at how beautiful that place is and still is. It's a tourist attraction. The city was hidden in the ravines deep in the uh, regions of the ravines of the east, uh, east of the Arabah. And uh, some of those remains remain, uh, some of those remains are still there. And as I say, they're a tourist attraction. Beautiful, beautiful place. In the Old Testament, this city, Petra, is called Sela, S-E-L-A. Now, if you look at the third verse of Obadiah, your version that you have may say Sela, or it may say Clefts of the Rock. The New American Standard Version, which you know is the version that I prefer, the NASB places a marginal note there and suggests Sela with a capital S, though it translates the clefts of the rock. Now, we'll talk about that when we get to verse 3 and uh, detail the debate over how you translate that verse from the Hebrew text. But nonetheless, here I mention the fact that Petra and Sela are occasionally interchangeable in the Old Testament. Now, why do I bring up Petra? Not only because it's a beautiful place, not only because it's associated with the ongoing history of this region, which belonged to the Edomites, but Petra has been in the news recently because of an archaeological discovery. You see, I told you about that archaeological website. This is the place where you pick up these little tidbits. What have they been doing at Petra recently? They've been surveying it by satellite imagery. In fact, they're surveying a lot of Palestine and Israel by satellite imagery, and they are coming up with amazing things from these satellites because they are seeing things on the ground in these regions that they didn't know were there because they walk over them. They're too big. And at Petra, they found this huge rectangular platform from a satellite image of the surrounding area near the city, where the ancient city was. A huge rectangular platform that was only visible when they had a satellite picture. And then they zeroed in on it. They said, we never knew that was there. All these years we've been wandering all over that wilderness outside Petra, and we've been stepping over this this." platform. Well, what is it? Huge rectangle. What is it? They don't know yet. Because they just found it. And now you can imagine all the little shovels and scaffolds and and, and little uh, 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 
diggers that you use to dig out, dig, throw cement and mortar on. Can't remember what the name of that thing is. But at any rate, you can imagine all of these tools that are getting packed away and people are running over there to start digging up. They want to find out what's around the periphery or underneath. You see, they'll, they'll take part of it and they'll dig down through it. Here's my guess. It's a place for religious ritual. Either religious ritual or civil ceremonial ritual. It's a large public forum, platform for some kind of rites, perhaps even pagan idolatrous rites. That's my suggestion. That's my guess. I've been wrong before. That's okay. But here it was, right out of the blue this summer. Petra comes up on my screen, this satellite image. You can see it. You can see the picture of this huge rectangular from outer space. It's amazing. Incredible. What was going on there? Well, yes, besides uh, perhaps a lot of idolatry, perhaps also some commercial uh, uh, transactions. All right. The point is this area, that Obadiah is talking about is an area that has a rich and varied historical and geographical story. And Obadiah is entering into that story by divine inspiration and revelation. But at the same time as he's receiving God's revelation, he knows about this region. He knows firsthand about this region. He's an eyewitness to this region. And he may even have been an eyewitness to its destruction by the Babylonians. Well, we can't finish that story this evening, so we'll postpone that to the next time when we look at the next section of our outline on the history of Edom, particularly as it's recorded in the Old Testament. Now, we don't have time to go through every reference to the history of Edom in the Old Testament. So what I have placed on the outline are the highlights of how Edom and Judah and Israel interface, particularly pivot points or transition points in that history which are important for understanding the background to the attitude of the book of Obadiah, the attitude of the Edomites towards the Judeans, the attitude of the Judeans towards the Edomites. This historical, this historical context is crucial to understanding what Obadiah says and how he says it. So bring your hand, bring your outline back next time. If you forget it, don't worry. I'll have some extra copies. So, but try to remember to bring it back so you can follow the discussion next Thursday when we take a look at the history of the Edomite nation in interrelation, in interface with the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem from the time of Jacob and Esau down to the sixth century BC. Do you have any questions? Okay. You know more about Edom than you've ever known before. And you need to know it 
as we go on with the book of Obadiah. Go ahead, Art. Did it exist during the lifetime of Esau? Uh, probably not. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how far back Selah goes in the history of Edom, but when you're talking about Esau, you're all the way back to almost 2000 BC. Now, that's not to deny that there may have been, you know, tribes or people that were entering into those that that cleft, that uh, cavern. It's not actually a cavern. It's just a a narrow uh, ravine, and then the city opens up in front of you. But the city was built uh, in the 4th century B.C. And before that, as I say, it's it's there with the name Selah in the Old Testament. <clears throat> but how how far back in history it goes, I can't say because I'm not aware of any of the excavations that have occurred there. The Edomites started with one person. No, remember that he, he with, with, with respect to his contribution to the nation of Edom, yes. But remember, the Horites are there before he arrives. So there's another civilization there already. <clears throat> uh, with respect to Petra, how far back Sela goes, we don't know. Or at least I don't know. Let me put it that way. I don't, I don't think it goes back to 2000 B.C. Okay, well, let's close in prayer. Lord, we realize that your word draws us into the drama of the story of the nations, including the story of Esau's descendants, the Edomites. We thank you for this opportunity to think about what even modern study has discovered about the character of that nation in its land, of how it was set out geographically as we look forward to understanding how it interfaced with the history of your people, the children of Israel. We realize also, O Lord, that the nations rise and fall. Kingdoms come and go. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is established invulnerable. We bless you for him. For he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we do adore him and his servant, the prophet Obadiah. And ask your blessing upon us as we talk about what that servant Obadiah has said. In Jesus' name, amen.